Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you to PISA for leading the first part of our service. Thank you, too, to FBI, even though they've gone, for um, explaining that uh, parable, and, in fact, they did a very good job. Um, I'm going to cover a little bit of the same ground, but I'm also going to dig really quite into the details, because there are some, perhaps, um, surprising dimensions of this parable that I want us to look at. So, um, please have your Bibles open at Luke chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1052, because I want you to follow along. We're going to look at the context and the details and really get stuck into it. But first, a few words of introduction. The 31st of January 2008 is a hugely significant date for millions of Americans. Something is going to take place this coming Thursday that they have been waiting for, some of them almost obsessively, for some considerable time. It has nothing to do with the uh, race to be the next President of the United States, as you might think. No, it, uh, it is something far more important for these folk. They are the devoted fans of the hit television series, Lost. On Thursday of this week, Lost will finally return to American television screens for its fourth season. And if you're a UK fan, by the way, you're going to have to wait a whole extra three days. Not that I have any interest in that, you understand. If you don't know anything about this series, it concerns a group of people who uh, survive a plane crash on a uh, remote Pacific island and their persistent but unsuccessful attempts to get off the island. This is no ordinary island, and no one knows where it really is, and a lot of strange, even supernatural things are taking place on it. And what's more, it turns out that the survivors aren't alone. Every season of Lost has ended with a dramatic cliffhanger episode, and I'm, I'm not giving too much away by saying that in the last episode of the third season, that finished back in March, it looked as though the band of survivors might finally get rescued. But will they? Well, the fans are on the edges of their seats, uh, but although the fourth season of Lost was initially expected to start in September last year, the producers announced back in May that it wouldn't return until early 2008. And then to add to the frustration of these fans, a writer's strike in Hollywood looked as though it would knock things back even further, forcing an even longer wait for the return of Jack and Kate and all the characters that they've come to know so well. Well, one question that arises for the fan base of a TV series like that is, what do you do while you're waiting for it to return? There's nothing new to talk about, it's off air, everything's on hold, as it were. So what do you do? Without inviting too many comparisons, I want to suggest that Jesus' disciples faced a similar but far more important question after hearing Jesus' words in Luke chapter 17, which we looked at last week, and I hope you were there when we went through Luke 17. Uh, If you were here in the evening last Sunday, you'll remember that the final verses of chapter 17 dealt with warnings, Jesus' warnings about his second coming. The day the Son of Man is revealed, verse 30, chapter 17. And now we come to chapter 18. And it may seem on the face of it that this marks a change in topic with little relation to what precedes it. After all, this parable, 
that Jesus tells is clearly about prayer. We can see that. So is there any connection between this chapter and the previous one? Actually, there's a very close connection. The first verse of uh, chapter 18 should actually alert us to that. Then Jesus told his disciples. Uh, The original Greek that's been translated here literally reads, and he told them. Who's them? Well, it's the people he's just been speaking to in chapter 17. This is a continuation of the same teaching session. And the connection between the two topics is this. Jesus has just been teaching about the coming of God's kingdom, the coming of God's kingdom. And there's a sense in which God's kingdom has already arrived in Jesus, uh, which is why he says to the Pharisees, in verse 21 of chapter 17, the kingdom of God is among you. Uh, Remember, Colin explained that it's better to translate it as the kingdom of God is among you rather than within you because it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the king. When the king is among you, the kingdom is here. So, in a sense, the kingdom has already arrived in Jesus. But there's also a sense in which the kingdom has not fully and decisively arrived. That climactic event will be the second coming, what Jesus calls the day of the Son of Man. And he implies that that final coming of the kingdom would be delayed. There would be a delay of some unspecified length. Just look at uh, verse 22 of chapter 17. He says, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the, ki- of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Jesus implies here and elsewhere in the Gospels that certain other things must take place before his return. His followers would have to wait for it. So the question naturally arises, what should we do while we wait? What should we do while we are waiting for Jesus to return and to finally usher in the kingdom of God in all its glory? Or as I put it rather mischievously in the title of this message, what to do while you're waiting for the rapture? If you don't know what the rapture is, just speak to Peter Granger after the service. He will explain all the details about the second coming to you. He'll be delighted to do that. No, this morning I want to focus on this question. What should the followers of Jesus do while we wait for him to return? What should we do? And since that event, that delay has now extended uh, to almost 2,000 years, the question surely is more relevant for us than ever. Well, the parable in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, is Jesus' answer to that question, I think. One of the great things about this parable, especially if you have to preach on it, is that Jesus tells you exactly what it's about, uh, and before he's even told it. I really wish he'd done that with the parable of the shrewd manager, which I had to wrestle with back in December. But here he tells us straight away, verse 1, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Jesus' answer to the question, what should we do while we wait, is really very simple. In two words, persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. So what I want to do this morning is just unpack four aspects of this persistent prayer so that we'll know exactly what it is that we're to do while we wait for Jesus to return. 
Those four aspects are the circumstances of persistent prayer, the content of persistent prayer, the confidence of persistent prayer, and the companion of persistent prayer. I suspect some of you are thinking now, a four-point sermon, yikes, I better make myself comfortable. Uh, well, let me reassure you that I'm not going to take any longer than the, over this than usual, if that is any comfort to you. <laughs> so first then, the circumstances of persistent prayer. The question I want to answer here is, why the need for persistent prayer? Why the need for persistent prayer? What circumstances did Jesus think will call for persistent prayer? Well, the answer is found by focusing on the widow in the parable. The situation of the widow is meant to compare with the situation of the disciples who wait for Jesus to return. First of all, the widow was a symbol of helplessness. She certainly would have uh, felt helpless uh, in in the male-dominated culture of Jesus' day. Widows were among the most disadvantaged and powerless of all people in society. Uh, Whatever the exact problem faced by this widow, the fact that she had to resort to pleading with this godless, selfish judge shows that she was in a desperate situation. She was helpless. Second, the widow experienced injustice. Injustice. We aren't... uh, uh, what, What kind of injustice? We aren't told. I'm not sure that it had anything to do with a Nintendo. Uh, We just don't know. But uh, we know that it involved an adversary. Verse 3. Injustice caused by an adversary. Someone else had wronged her. And her only hope uh, was to bring her cause to this judge. Third, the the widow experienced the frustration of delay. Delay. She didn't get justice right away. She didn't get immediate relief from her problem. She had to be patient. She had to be persistent. It was only after persistently pleading with this judge that she finally got the justice she deserved. So those were the circumstances faced by the widow. And Jesus implies that his disciples will experience something similar in the time between his first coming and his second coming. There will be times when they and we feel utterly helpless. We realize that God is our only hope. His disciples will experience injustice. Not only will they see God's moral laws trampled on uh, in the world around them, and they'll see wicked people prospering at the expense of the righteous, but they themselves will also be treated unjustly because they are followers of Jesus. The Bible makes it clear that it is normal for followers of Jesus to experience persecution. Here in the UK, we have yet to feel the real sting of persecution, and we should be thankful for that, make the most of it. But so far as the worldwide Christian church goes, the followers, uh, our situation is not at all typical. It's not typical at all. Arguably, there's more widespread and intense persecution of Christians today than there ever has been. Only a week ago, just to give you one example, I got an email with this subject line. Worst anti-Christian violence in India for 60 years hits Orissa at Christmas. According to the report in this email, Hindu extremists had burned to the ground 95 churches, 
and 730 homes of Christians in this place, Orissa, in India. And one organization in India described it as the largest attack on the Christian community in the history of democratic India. As if to leave no doubt that uh, these attacks were aimed specifically at Christians because they were Christians, the attacks were carried out on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Incredible. And that's just one example among many. In India, Pakistan, Iraq, Sudan, Nigeria, Indonesia, Burma, North Korea, just to name some of the better known countries of the world. And because of all this injustice and opposition, Christians long for Jesus to return. We long for the wrongs to be put right. We long for God's perfect kingdom of peace and justice to come once and for all. And yet after two millennia, we're still waiting. And that's hard. Particularly if you or your Christian brothers and sisters are suffering for the sake of Christ. Like the martyrs in the book of Revelation, we want to cry out, How long, Sovereign Lord? How long, Sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Jesus told this parable so that his disciples who find themselves in precisely these circumstances would always pray and not give up. So, do you find yourself frustrated and discouraged at the appalling injustices in this world, particularly the way that Christians are treated? When you pick up your copy of Evangelicals Now, do you want to skip the world news page because it's just so upsetting to read? Do you feel helpless to do anything about it? Do you just wish that Jesus would get back here and sort everything out? Well, I, I often do. And Jesus is clear about what we should be doing in these circumstances. We should always pray and not give up. Well, let's turn from the circumstances of persistent prayer to the content of persistent prayer. And here, I want to consider the question, what should we persistently pray about? What exactly should we pray for? Uh, Whatever happens to be on our hearts, does it really matter what we pray about? Perhaps like me, when you first read this parable, uh, you could clearly see from verse 1 that it was about persisting in prayer. That's clear enough. Keep praying. Don't give up. And perhaps certain kinds of prayers came to mind that might uh, require particular persistence. Prayers for someone who's suffering from long-term illness. Prayers for someone who's struggling to come, terms, come to terms with the way that they've been hurt in the past. Prayers for someone who's trapped in a cycle of sin. Prayers for a friend or a family member to come to the Lord or to come back to the Lord. All of these obviously require persistent prayer. I'm sure you have your own examples in mind. I don't want to suggest for a moment that we shouldn't persistently pray for these things. Of course, we should. We have good things to pray for. But Jesus has a quite specific focus in this parable. He wants his disciples to keep on praying for something quite particular. He's exhorting them and us to pray for the vindication of God's people. The vindication of God's people. 
the widow pleaded with the judge for justice for justice grant me justice against my adversary she said and eventually the, ju- the judge gave in and saw that she got the justice she deserved now this widow was not looking for justice for someone else she wanted justice for herself it was her cause she had been wronged by someone and she was pleading for that wrong to be put right some commentators translate the word justice here as vindication the widow wants her cause to be vindicated in the face of injustice now we've already seen that the widow in this parable is meant to reflect the, uh, the situation of Jesus' disciples and Jesus says that just as the widow gets justice he specifically says that God's people will get justice in response to their prayers now think about this if the answer to their prayers is vindication then Jesus must be expecting his disciples to pray for vindication if the answer is vindication he must be expecting them to pray for vindication Jesus knew perfectly well that although God's kingdom would grow and grow his followers would face consistent opposition until he returned insofar as they are faithful to Jesus they will be opposed by the world and they will be opposed by Satan it's worth noting that the name Satan means adversary one who opposes they will suffer injustice they will be wronged and so they will cry out to God for vindication for the wrongs to be put right so the persistent prayer is a prayer for the vindication of God's people and how exactly will this prayer be answered well uh, there will be I think immediate partial answers to that prayer there will be times when God does intervene and deliver his children from their enemies but the ultimate vindication the ultimate vindication will not come until Jesus returns and God brings down the curtain on this stage of human history only then will all the wrongs be put right and what that means is that the ultimate answer to the persistent prayer will be the decisive climactic coming of God's kingdom in Christ when Jesus is revealed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and every knee will bow before him that's the ultimate answer to the prayer and that means that our persistent prayer should also be for the coming of God's kingdom for the coming of God's kingdom Jesus exhorts us to keep on praying for the vindication of God's people through the coming of God's kingdom in fact this prayer is nothing other than the Lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's a prayer for everything that needs to be accomplished before Christ's return to be accomplished soon it's a prayer for the speedy completion of the great commission a prayer that the gospel will be established in every nation it's a persistent prayer for the return of Christ it's the final prayer of the book of Revelation come Lord Jesus well when you think about it like that it certainly makes you reevaluate your own prayer life doesn't it makes you reevaluate your church prayer meetings as well 
Do you pray daily for the vindication of God's people and the coming of God's kingdom? Do I? When was the last time that you heard someone pray a prayer like that in a prayer meeting? One commentator on this passage, Daryl Bock, puts the point very well, and so uh, let me just quote him at length. He puts it better than I would. He writes, This parable reveals something significant about prayer. Most prayer meetings I attend take on a predictable character. We pray for one another's needs, usually issues like finance and health. Occasionally a request for the opportunity to share with a friend or a neighbour comes in, along with the obligatory prayer for the leaders of our country and missionaries. The victims of natural or political disaster also get attention. What is often missing in such meetings are the types of concerns reflected in this parable's call for persistent prayer. We are to pray earnestly for the vindication of our testimony in the world and our eventual full redemption by the hand of God. To use the imagery of the parable, do we as a church community wear God down with such a request for vindication? So that's the content of persistent prayer. But what about the confidence for persistent prayer? The confidence for persistent prayer. Where does our confidence lie in these prayers? Well, to put the question in another way, why is it worth persisting in prayer? It turns out we find two answers in this parable. Two answers that I think should give us great encouragement to always pray and not give up. Which is exactly, of course, what Jesus wanted. The first answer is this. God is just. God is just. Some people who read this parable get a bit confused by it. They think, uh, if we're supposed to compare ourselves to the widow, then presumably we're supposed to compare God to the judge. But does Jesus really want us to think that God is like this judge? Uh, Do we have to nag him to death, so to speak, just to get what we need? Well, the judge certainly isn't an admirable character. We're told that he neither feared God nor cared about men. He was godless and selfish. One commentator calls him an utterly ruthless scoundrel. But of course, we're not supposed to conclude that God is like this judge. We are supposed to draw a comparison, but it's a negative comparison rather than a positive one. Jesus is using what is called an argument from the lesser to the greater. He wants us to reason like this. The judge in the parable was unjust, a thoroughly corrupt man, but in the end, even he was compelled to give the widow what she wanted because she was just driving him up the wall with his visits. Yet God is not unjust. He is perfectly just. In fact, his character defines justice. He loves justice more than anyone. How much more then Should we expect God to answer prayers for justice, pleas for vindication? That's the logic of the parable. We can have every confidence that God will answer those prayers precisely because we know that God is not like that judge. So that's the first reason for confidence. There's a second one. A second one. The confidence for persistent prayer lies also in the fact that God has chosen us. God has chosen us. Look at verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones 
who cry out to him day and night. His chosen ones are, of course, the disciples of Jesus who pray to God. And that includes us. Friends, we're not just anyone when we pray to God. We are special. We are God's chosen people. He has freely and graciously set his love upon us in a unique way. He has called us out of the world and into his kingdom. We have the most privileged position imaginable. And that is also why we should be encouraged to always pray and not give up. The phrase, his chosen ones, can also be translated his elect. And in some translations, maybe you have a different translation, that's how it appears, his elect. And obviously, this is going to be connected with the doctrine of election, the biblical teaching that we are chosen by God. Now, the doctrine of election has been notoriously uh, controversial among Christians. In fact, I imagine some of you are already beginning to shift in your seats in anticipation of what I might say about it. But the Bible clearly says that believers are chosen by God. Uh, there's been heated debate about exactly what that means and what it implies. And because of this debate, some Christians are inclined to keep the doctrine of election at arm's length, as it were. As if it's just an invitation to theological uh, speculation and argument and it really doesn't do us any good. I want to suggest that that would be a huge mistake. Because what we see in this parable, in just these few words, is that the doctrine of election has a profoundly practical relevance to the Christian life. It is one of the reasons why it is worth persisting in prayer. And so rather than trying to avoid the doctrine of election, because it might be a bit controversial, we should in fact be meditating on it and all the wonderful implications that it has for our prayer lives. So then, this parable gives us two great reasons for confidence in persistent prayer. One, God is just. He hates injustice infinitely more than we do. Secondly, God has chosen us to be his special, beloved people. And that is why we should be encouraged to always pray and not give up. Well, I hope by now that we have a much better picture of why it is that Jesus wants us to pray with persistence and what it is that we should be praying about. But we can't finish without taking a look at this final sentence in our passage, verse 8, second half. Jesus concludes this parable with a striking rhetorical question. Verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The Son of Man, as some of you may know, was Jesus' favourite title for himself. He often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And so, when the Son of Man comes, is a reference to Jesus' own return, to the second coming, which he'd been, as we've seen, teaching about previously, chapter 17. And if we had read this parable out of context, we might be surprised by the sudden reference to the second coming, in verse 8. But since we've looked at the context, and the way that chapter 17 leads naturally into chapter 18... I hope we can see the connection. We are to pray persistently for the vindication of God's people and the ultimate fulfilment of that will be in the coming of God's kingdom when Jesus returns. That's the connection. But what about this reference to faith? 
Jesus has been focusing on prayer. Why does he now bring faith into the picture? What's the connection between faith and persistent prayer? Here's the connection. Faith is the companion of persistent prayer. Faith is the companion of persistent prayer. The two go hand in hand. Where there is persistent prayer, there is faith. And where there is faith, there is persistent prayer. Now, how does this work? Well, I want to suggest there are two ways in which this works. In the first place, persistent prayer is a sign of faith. It's a sign of faith. If you thought about this, you can't see faith as such, can you? I can't peer into your head and see whether you have faith. You can't peer into my head and see if I have faith. Faith itself is not visible. But the outworking of faith should be very visible. And one of the visible outworkings of faith, Jesus suggests, is persistent prayer for the coming of God's kingdom. And so when Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's asking, in effect, when I return, will I find people who are still faithfully praying for my return? Will my disciples keep on praying right up to the time when their prayers are answered? Or will they have given up long before then? So persistent prayer is a sign of faith. But it's also, interestingly, a spur to faith. A spur to faith. Perhaps you've asked yourself, how can I increase my faith? How can I develop in my faith as a follower of Jesus? Well, here is one very practical way that you could put into action today. Always pray for the vindication of God's people through the coming of God's kingdom and don't give up. Here are some practical suggestions. Why not get a copy of Operation World and pray through it day by day for the fulfilment of the Great Commission through World Mission. Or you could sign up for the prayer diaries of uh, the Barnabas Fund or Christian Solidarity Worldwide or some similar organization so that you can pray every day for your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering tremendous opposition for the sake of Jesus. If you want to increase your faith, pray persistently. Pray for the defeat of Satan. Pray for the vindication of God's people. Biologists sometimes speak about uh, symbiotic relationships. I don't know if you've heard that term. Symbiotic relationships between organizations. The idea is of two species that uh, are mutually dependent for health and survival so that they always live together. They're always found together. Well, you could say that there's a symbiotic relationship between faith and persistent prayer. I think that's what Jesus points us to here. The two are mutually dependent. They always live together. They'll always be found together. And Jesus asks his disciples, as he asks us, will I find either of these things when I return to usher in God's kingdom finally and decisively? Well, in reading this question, it may seem, certainly in our English translations, that the question implies a negative answer, that Jesus is pessimistic about the faith of his disciples. But the original Greek actually doesn't imply a yes or no answer. It's just 
ambiguous. The, the, the answer is left wide open, grammatically speaking. And so the force of the question is to present us with a challenge. The ball has been knocked into our court, so to speak. Jesus' question doesn't give us cause for pessimism, but it certainly doesn't give us cause for complacency either. It simply leaves us with a challenge. And that challenge is essentially the same challenge that Jesus gave in chapter 17 when he spoke about his return. Just look back, chapter 17, verses 31 to 33. It's what he says about that second coming. On that day, no one who is in the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. In other words, it's a matter of priorities. When Christ returns, will his followers have their eyes already turned towards heaven? Will that be the direction that they're looking? Or will their focus be on all their earthly possessions and pleasures? What will our priorities be on that day? And how will that be seen in the content and the constancy of our prayers? As each century has passed by since Jesus asked that question, the challenge has been handed on from generation to generation. And today, it falls into our hands, along with every other Christian alive today. It's been a long time, and the challenge is the challenge to keep going is more relevant than ever. So let's ask, in closing, if Jesus were to return in 2008, would he find faith in Charlotte Chapel? Would he find persistent prayer in Charlotte Chapel? No doubt he would find biblical sermons, some better than others, no doubt. Some, he, uh, no doubt, he would find uh, lively children's work. He would find an impressive student ministry, I think. No doubt, he would find a good system of small groups, fellowship groups. No doubt, he would find people who had become Christians recently through Christianity Explored, people who were following through in baptism. But would he find persistent prayer? Faithful, frequent, fervent prayer for the vindication of God's people and the coming of God's kingdom. The challenge is there and it really couldn't be clearer what we need to do. Pray. Pray privately. Pray publicly. Pray at home. Pray with your families. Pray with your children. Pray at church. Pray at work. Pray whenever you hear the news on the radio or the television. Pray in your car, or on the bus, or on your bike, or on your knees. Pray when you wake up in the morning. Pray when you lie down at night. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Always pray, and don't give up. Well, there's really only one thing we can do now, isn't there? Let's pray. Let's do just that.